Turn in your Bibles, please, to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. If you are joining us for the first time today, we have been occupied with a study of the book of Exodus for about the last nine months or so. And today, we will close that series out uh, by looking at the final six chapters of the book. So we're not going to be able to get into uh, every minute detail of these chapters, but uh, nor are we going to read all of them uh, here and now, but uh, you can certainly do so uh, at home later on. It would only take you about 15 minutes or so. Uh, but let's go ahead and read from chapter 40. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. And you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil, and you shall bring in the table and arrange it, and you shall bring in the lampstand and set up its lamps, and you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony, and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all round and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy." You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments. And you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also and put coats on them and anoint them as you anointed their father that they may serve me as priests and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month, in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars and he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark and he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle outside the veil and arranged the bread on it before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstand in the tent of meeting opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle and set up the lamps before the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in place the screen for the door of the tabernacle and he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing with with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet when they 
went into the tent of meeting, and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court round the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me now? Father, we praise you as the uncreated God. You never had a beginning. You will never have an ending. You have never improved because you've always been perfect. You've never exhausted your own interest in your glory because it is inexhaustible. Father, we don't deserve to come before you. We're creatures, and not just that, sinful. We've been corrupted in our desires and in our words and in our thoughts and in our actions, and so, Father, we beg the blood of Christ, and we come to you only in the name of Jesus, confident that his sacrifice was sufficient to bring us into the tabernacle and behind the veil where we can meet with you. Father, I pray that that's what would take place this morning. Lord, as we pray to you, we also remember those in our midst who are suffering. Uh, We ask that you would bring rapid, complete healing for Ty Hartley and Freddie Trevino and... Uh, Mary Ann and uh, Carrie and James Smith and uh, others I'm sure that I'm not recalling to mind at the moment, but I pray that you would visit them with your peace and your healing power. Uh, Father, we thank you for answered prayer, that today, as so many days, you, uh, you have answered that request. Uh, your grace is more than enough for us. Lord, most of all, we pray that your name would be held up and glorified in our church and in churches throughout our region and the world. And we think especially today of Fairview Baptist Church south of town, and we ask that you would uh, just pour out your Spirit's power and presence in their midst. And I pray that that congregation would uh, fulfill everything that you have planned for them as your children. We pray for Pastor John Tunnel as he brings the word that you would fill him with your spirit and that that your power would be seen, felt, and known. We pray for the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention as messengers from all around the world meet together this week in Nashville and discuss some momentous and very difficult topics. Uh, Father, to you be the glory and not unto us. But I pray that you would grant mercy, the mercy of 
humility, the mercy of a uh, good testimony before the world, the mercy of healing toward uh, victims of abuse, the mercy of reconciliation between people of different cultures and ethnicities, and the mercy of wise leaders. Uh, Only you can provide these things, and yet we know that you care for your church, and so we're asking that you would do so. And then, Father, I pray that you would open up your word to us, as you always do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as I said, today is the last day for our study through the book of Exodus. I trust, I hope, I pray that you understand a little bit more if you've walked through this with us than you did a year ago, that you have a growing appreciation for the fact that there's way more here than we could ever cover on uh, uh, Sunday mornings in the space of nine months or even uh, twice that long or three times that long, and, and that you... Uh, that those treasures that we can find in this book are worth digging for. But most of all, I pray that you have had an encounter with the God who reveals himself in this book as I am. Coming out of the incident with the golden calf in which the children of Israel absolutely stomped on the covenant that God had made with them, God reveals himself even more clearly, even more three-dimensionally than ever before as the God who is merciful and gracious, a God who's overflowing with steadfast love, showing loyal love to thousands, not clearing the guilty. And even though they don't have the knowledge and the assurance that we can have when we meet with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom the judgment of God and the mercy of God meet together perfectly, At the cross, for the first time here in Exodus, it seems that by and large the children of Israel actually have begun to get it. They they actually get it. Now, it took time. They saw God's power. They heard his voice. They enjoyed his provision. But they didn't really get it at first. They, they, They veered off course so quickly. But after he shows that he is their God, their heavenly father, their, the God who sticks with them in spite of their sin, the God who's overwhelmingly faithful, then finally they get it. It's somehow he turns on the light for them and the scales sort of fall from their eyes. And what we're going to see in these closing chapters in the book of Exodus is that they are transformed by that knowledge of God, that personal knowledge, not just of theological truth, but of the God who reveals himself in Scripture. And I have a question for you this morning. Was there ever a time in your life when God turned on the light? When he awakened your heart and your, your, your inner man was flooded with a revelation of Almighty God? of his power and his righteousness and his unfathomable mercies all at once, have you ever been like jolted awake by the reality that he knows you and and is able and willing to completely forgive and welcome you in spite of all that you've done? One thing is for sure, when that happens, like when you get it, you'll be different. 
You will not be the same. When you truly encounter God as he reveals himself to be in the book of Exodus and in the rest of the Bible, when, he personally, when you personally encounter him, when it hits you that he loves you, that he's after you, that he's pursuing you, in spite of everything, when that reality engulfs you, you will be different. That's what happens to the children of Israel at the close of the book of Exodus, as we'll see from a kind of a brief survey of these long chapters, and they are going to respond in six specific ways. Six responses that flow out of a heart that, that gets it. Six responses that we'll want to look for in ourselves this morning as we go through this passage. So uh, notice with me, first of all, that when you get it, you respond from the heart. When you get it, you respond from the heart. Uh, I can't emphasize enough that from cover to cover, there's not a single letter of this book that emphasizes outward adherence to a list of rules over the transforma- transformation of the inner man, the heart. When you get it, when you meet God, you will respond from the heart. That's what God has always and will always be after in the lives of human beings. Notice, uh, going back to chapter 35 and verse 5, look at what it says. Moses says, whoever is of a generous heart. Or chapter 35, verse 21, they came, everyone whose heart stirred him. Or chapter 35, verse 29, everyone whose heart moved them. Uh, When you get it, you respond from the heart. So look at what Moses is asking for in, in these chapters. If you've read it before, you know. But God has commanded him to build this specific sanctuary. It's a glorious sanctuary. It's a very expensive sanctuary. And as the leader of a very large nation, he could very easily just have imposed a tax on the people and said, this is how much money that we need. We're going to have a tax. Everybody's going to pitch in. There's no option. Uh, You just have to pay your taxes, and we're going to build this thing and and be, be on our way. But that's not what he does. He says, we're going to build this building, but you decide in your own heart what you're going to give, if anything, to the project. And so the people respond by their own free will. Do you see why that would be important to God? Do you see, like, what is God doing in the world? What is he after in this world? From the very beginning of time, he has been moving all things toward this goal of creating in the earth a sanctuary in which he might share his glory with human beings in fellowship. So he wants to share himself with his people, and he wants them to desire him. He wants them to them to long for that fellowship, to, to love his glory, to lean into his mercies. You're the same way. Now, you find somebody you like, you want them to like you back, right? You don't want to have to force and manipulate them into hanging out with you. You want them to want to be with you. This is what God is after. And in this particular case, the Israelites get it. They actually get it. They see God for who he is, and they can't help but respond in gratitude and love from the heart. I just wonder, where's your heart at? Do you get it? I don't know if you realize this, but everything that the Israelites did just a few chapters before, bowing down to the golden calf, completely shattering the covenant that God had made with them, everything that the Israelites have done, we've done. We have done the same thing over and over again, taking these Ten Commandments and thrown them on the ground. I mean, have you ever actually tried to obey what God commands, like everything that God commands? They're not hard to understand, 
but they're very hard to do. Very hard to obey, and every single one of us has cre- was created to glorify God. Every, every single one of us has said, now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my own thing. And we have over and over again shattered his commands. And friends, this should, from a certain perspective, leave us without hope, without God, without even another breath to take. There's no reason why God should even leave us here as far as our own merits are concerned. It would make total sense for him to just sweep us off the workbench and start over. And yet, he didn't do that. I'm still breathing. You're still alive. And not only that, but God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, and he lived perfectly, and then he took the curse on himself, and to all of us, he offered this exchange. I will give you my righteousness, and I will take the punishment that you deserve on my own body. And you're not just going to be alive, but you're going to be the treasured possession of the Father. And there is nothing, there is absolutely nothing that any of us can do, that anybody can do, to change his mind. He is going to save his people. So if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, if you've received Jesus, then there's no way that you could ever be cast aside. It's finished. It's settled. And the Israelites, they got to see God's kindness, but then Moses put the veil back on. We, we, on this side of the cross, we get to see all the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in this unveiled scripture. And he's promised to share himself with us. I mean, does that do anything for you? What's going on in your heart? Do you get it? Because when you get it, you're going to respond from the heart. Secondly, when you get it, you respond with generosity. When you get it, you respond with generosity. Uh, This is one of the responses that your heart will generate when you encounter the one true God. So when you personally experience his grace, you're going to respond with generosity. Look at what the people do, and keep in mind, these Israelites were in multiple generations of slavery and poverty in Egypt, and they had just come into wealth. They had plundered the Egyptians, and for the first time, they actually have some nice things. But when they actually get it, when it starts to dawn on them that this God is as gracious and as wonderful and as merciful as he really is, they look at what happens in, in chapter 36, verse 3 and following. Read this with me. It says, they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning. So that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task in the sanctuary came, each one from the task that he was doing, and said to Moses, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command, and word was proclaimed throughout the camp, let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution of the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. So what's going on here? They were so generous, so transformed in their heart that they had to be told, stop, we can't take any more gold and silver and precious gems and, and, and premium fabric and, and hardwood. Like, you've got to stop bringing this stuff because it's too many things. Later on, uh, Moses gives us a report of the materials that were used to build the tabern- uh, tabernacle. And so I took a few minutes to do some calculations on just how much it was that the people actually gave to the building. Uh, we're told 
in chapter 39 that they used more than 29 talents of gold and more than 100 talents of silver. And I know that might not communicate anything to you, uh, but in addition to all the other stuff that they brought, just think about the silver and the gold. So by today's standards, I looked this up this week. Uh, I'm not like a gold trader or anything like that, but I looked this up this week. Gold is worth at this point more than $60,000 per kilogram. So think about that. Scholars estimate that there's about 35 kilograms in a talent. It's an estimate because it's an ancient measurement. But they estimate about 35 kilograms in a talent. So 60,000 times 35 kilograms per talent times 29 talents adds up to about $61 million worth of gold. That's a lot of gold. Uh, you could argue, of course, that gold in, in their day was actually a lot more precious than it is today. I mean, now we have all these technologies that we can use to mine it out of the earth, but back then they didn't have those technologies. So that $61 million worth of gold, at least, the silver by today's prices would be worth about $3.2 million. Add to that all the skilled labor, the bronze, the precious gems, the leather, the linen, the valuable spices, this was a remarkably expensive building. And when you think that it was all financed by the free will offering of freed slaves, this was a remarkable act of generosity. They got it. They had met God, they had come to understand who he was, and the great grace that he had shown toward them, and they responded with generosity. They, they didn't just give a little, they were lavishly generous with their possessions in response to their encounter with I am. They were generous. Friends, when you get it, this is how you're going to respond. This is the kind of response that's going to take place in your heart. You're going to respond in generosity. Sometimes that looks like giving away your possessions, like Barnabas in the book of Acts, Barnabas heard the gospel of Jesus. He was born again. He had an encounter with God himself. And what did he do? He had some land. He sold the land and took all the proceeds from the sale, and he brought it to the apostles' feet to take care of the church. Barnabas wasn't this remarkable exception to the rule. Many, many believers have done these sacrificial acts of generosity uh, throughout the course of the history of God's people. I think of people even today like Rick Warren or John Piper or Randy Alcorn. They have these incredibly successful writing ministries and they're reaping all these royalties and they're giving all of it or almost all of it away to missions or to, to, to serving their neighbors or their community. Countless believers who are famous only in heaven have lived modest lives with normal houses and unimpressive clothes and cars while they pour out their riches for the sake of missions or mercy ministries or to meet the needs of neighbors. No one, and I mean no one, is as generous as a Christian who has had an encounter with Jesus Christ. That is a verifiable, repeatable reality. If it weren't for people meeting God, if it weren't for people who get it, then there would be no hospitals, no churches, very few schools and universities. I think about this very often because I actually make, you know, I earn my living here at Indian Creek Baptist Church. But every single penny of my paycheck comes from the uncoerced, free gifts of the people of God who just love the Lord and they want to respond in generosity. That is incredible to me that just every day this is going on. 
You see, when you get it, you respond in generosity. A lot of times that does look like giving away wealth and possessions, but it doesn't always look that way. Sometimes it looks like giving away yourself. Uh, I think of a person by the name of George Lyle. Uh, You might not know that name. He's one of the most remarkable figures in the history of the American church, though. Uh, George Lyle was born a slave in Virginia in 1751. He tried to lead a moral life, but as a young man, he began to despair because he realized he had failed. One day, while listening to the gospel preaching of a man named Matthew Moore, his eyes were opened. Here's how George Lyle put it. He said, the more I heard or read, the more I saw that I was condemned as a sinner before God. Till at length, I was brought to perceive that my life hung by a slender thread. And if it was the will of God to cut me off at that time, I was sure I should be found in hell as sure as God was in heaven. I saw my condemnation in my own heart, and I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which caused me to make intercession with Christ for the salvation of my poor, immortal soul. So that very day, Lyle called out to Christ, and he found peace with God and assurance that he was redeemed and completely forgiven, and immediately he was a different man. He began to devour biblical truth whenever he had the chance, and he was known to preach to his fellow slaves. Uh, His master was so overcome by Lyle's testimony that he set him free, but that didn't stop him from continuing his ministry among the slaves. He just kept right on doing what he had been doing. For years he preached. Many were converted. Several famous preachers were converted under his ministry. Uh, During the Revolutionary War, he was bound to evacuate his home and actually leave for Jamaica, where a full 10 years before William Carey set off as the father of modern missions, And decades before the ministry of Adoniram Judson, George Lyle began a cross-cultural evangelistic ministry in Kingston, Jamaica. In the ensuing years, he baptized nearly 500 people, most of them slaves or former slaves, refusing to accept payment, but instead choosing to earn his living by hard work. So throughout his entire career, he did hard labor in addition to his gospel ministry. His impact on the Jamaican church is second to none. Those converted under his ministry went on to preach the gospel in Georgia, Nova Scotia, and as far away as Sierra Leone. I'm sure if we tried hard enough, we could trace his influence down to this very day. You see, here's my point. You don't have to have a lot of money in order to be a generous person and respond in generosity. Lyle started out a slave. He did hard labor nearly every day of his life, but he gave himself. Because when you meet the Lord Jesus Christ, when you actually get it, you will be different. You will respond from the heart. You'll respond with generosity. Friend, you want to know why you're not generous? It it may be because you just don't get it. it. It might be because... You have become so anxious over how you're going to pay the bills. It might be because you've become so convinced that your stuff is what life is all about. It might be because you've convinced yourself that you're doing it all for the kids or the grandkids as if those possessions are more important to them than the example of a life lived in obedience to God. And you've forgotten that you've been bought with the priceless blood of Christ by the one who owns all things already. 
friend, if you have Jesus, you don't really need all that extra stuff. You don't need to be greedy. You don't need to hoard up treasures here on earth. The God of all the earth, the holy God, the creator God, has poured out his mercies towards you. There is nothing that can take away his love from you. Do you realize that? Do you get that? Then don't for one second let your possessions or the lack thereof get in the way of your response toward him. When you get it, you're going to respond from the heart. You're going to respond in generosity. Thirdly, when you get it, you're going to respond in obedience. When you get it, you respond in obedience. I don't know how many of you read through all six of these chapters uh, here at Indian Creek. Uh, you probably have noticed, if you've been coming for a while, we try to publish the sermon text in advance in the bulletin at, uh, in a couple other places so you can read ahead. So I imagine that at least a few of you were able to read this text before today. But let's just be honest. I mean, we'd all be lying if we said that this was the most riveting section of the Bible. You're slogging through all this detail, right? They made the frames out of this kind of wood, and they, made, they attached them together with that kind of metal, and there were this many of that, and there were a certain amount of cubits from there, and, and on and on it seems to go. But if you're a careful reader of Scripture, and we all should be, you'll notice that these six chapters are almost a verbatim repetition of God's instructions to Moses in chapters 25 through 31. So think about what that means. That means that out of a book that is 40 chapters long, almost a third of it is given over to the details of the construction of the tabernacle, and that detail actually gets repeated twice. And you have to ask yourself, why is that? Like, did Moses forget that he had already said a lot of these things? Did he have a sort of a senior moment or something? He's been out in the sun in the desert for too long. What's going on? Well, let me ask you this. Is there any doubt in your mind, if you read through these chapters, whether the people did exactly what God told them to do once we get to the end of the book? There's no doubt. I mean, they go through every last detail, down to the finer points, and they do everything that God tells them to do. I mean, is there any detail that they decided to abandon because it was too expensive or too inconvenient? Was there anything that they decided, hey, let's improve on what God had said. Let's make this even better. No. They did exactly what God told them to do. And we know for sure, based on everything Moses tells us, that the Israelites did exactly what God told them to do. That's why 24 times in these chapters we get some version of the phrase repeated, they did as the Lord commanded them to do, or as the Lord commanded Moses, or just what the Lord commanded. And here's the point. When you get it, when you really get it, you will respond in obedience. When you get it, you will really you will respond in obedience. Yes, you will. I'm telling you, the difference is clear. There is a very clear difference between people who come to church or come to Bible study because they, they listen to Christian music because it just kind of helps them relax or cope with life and people who have had an actual real encounter with I Am. And the difference often comes down to the, the question of obedience. One group... Uh, explains away the commands of God, the other seems not to even question. They obey. Uh, I remember when Mandy and I were first having children, and uh, before they were really old enough to make a lot of their own choices, I remember one of the dads in our Sunday school class shared 
something like this. He said, um, you know, my daughter doesn't really obey very well. But I know that she loves me because she'll say something like, Daddy, I wrote you a song, and she'll play some random notes on the piano for about 15 seconds. Or she'll say, Daddy, I made up a dance for you, and she'll twirl around and jump around for a little bit. And her songs aren't very good, and her dances don't have a lot of impressive steps, but I don't care about that because that's how she shows me that she loves me. And at the time, I thought that was just really sweet. And then as my kids started to get older, I realized it's complete hogwash. (laughs) I mean, not totally, but it's not total hogwash. It's nice when our kids do these things for us when they're young. We love you, children. (laughs) But especially as they grow, most parents realize that the way that they really show you that they love you is when they obey what you tell them to do. By the way, if you're the kind of parent who would rather have the silly little dance than obedience, I mean, both are nice. But if you're the kind that would rather have the dance than obedience, then you're not doing yourself or the child any favors. Isn't this kind of what Jesus tells his disciples in the Gospel of John? If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. You'll do what I tell you to do. And yet somehow we have managed to create a culture in the American church where if you start to talk about the commands of God, the, the, the things that God commands us to do, like we get almost allergic, like this allergic reaction to it. Like, are you a legalist or something? You know why we say that? Because we don't get it. And we've forgotten that, that this, is, this God is the God who invented the world who knows every detail of the way it works, who is unmatched in his righteousness and his goodness, who puts his expectations down on the bottom shelf so that we can understand what he wants us to do. Not because he is a legalist, but because his commands are a reflection of himself. This is a God who actually tells us how to live successfully in the middle of a world that is going to hell. This is a God, by the way, who doesn't just tell us to do it. He did it. Jesus obeyed all these demands when we couldn't. He was a red-blooded man, just like any of us. And yet he walked in obedience too. This is a God who said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the love of God, John says in 1 John 5, 3, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Because when you get it, you realize that the path of joy and peace and success is the path of obedience. Sometimes we don't understand in the moment why he's asking us to do what he's asking us to do, but we have learned because we've gotten to know him that his ways are perfect and they're way better than mine and that obedience itself is a blessing. See, when you get it, you're going to respond from the heart. You're going to respond in generosity. You're going to respond in obedience. But fourthly, notice when you get it, you respond in keeping with your gifts. You respond in keeping with your gifts. Here's what I mean. Notice chapter 35, verse 30. See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship. 
In other words, God the Holy Spirit gives this man, Bezalel, as a supernatural outpouring of abilities and skills in order that he might complete the work. So you might say, in a very specific sense, that Bezalel was gifted. That is, he had been entrusted with the skills and the circumstances to do the work that God had commanded Israel to do. And his response, along with the response of countless of other Israelite craftsmen, is to use those gifts in the service of God. So Bezalel got it, and he got busy. That doesn't mean it was easy. That doesn't mean it was pain-free. I imagine he had an aching back most days, blisters on his hands, sunburn on his neck. But Bezalel used his gifts. Understand that this event was not a one-time thing for God's people. God does something similar in the local church today. You might call it spiritual gifts, skills, abilities, even in some cases circumstances. That position each and every believer to contribute to the work of the ministry and to fulfill the Great Commission. Do you remember from earlier on in the book of Exodus when Pharaoh told the children of Israel to make bricks, but he didn't give them any straw with which to make the bricks? Often we act as though that's what God does, like his expectations are unrealistic. How are we supposed to make bricks without straw? But the truth is that God is not the kind of king that Pharaoh was. God doesn't ask us to make bricks without straw. He told the children of Israel to build a sanctuary where he could meet with them so that they could fulfill their purpose to be a royal priesthood and represent his glories to to all the peoples of the earth. And then he raised up individuals to get the work done. It might not always feel like it to you, but God is doing the same thing in his church. And trust me, I, I understand how hard it can be. I used to be the children's ministry director at my church. You know, trying to recruit Sunday school teachers and nursery workers and bus drivers and children's church helpers. And a lot of times it felt like we were just trying to squeeze water from an empty sponge. But if we as a church are sensitive to exactly what God is calling us as a body to do, then the truth of the matter is that he has provided us with more than enough to get it done. I've seen this over and over again. So many times, the elders and I have prayed in that prayer room back over there about a ministry need that none of us knew how to meet, and God has answered the prayer. He's gotten it done. How does this happen? It happens when you get it. It happens when you truly grasp what God has done for you in Christ. You begin to use the gifts that he's given you, these spiritual gifts, to serve the body of Christ and reach the community on his behalf. So let me just tell you something. Let me remind you of something that you might have forgotten. You, there was a time when you were a subject of the kingdom of Satan. Yes, You were a slave to a cruel taskmaster, destroying your very life by the pursuit of empty and meaningless desires. And then the Holy Spirit flooded your heart with the truth. And as Paul says, Christ came and took captivity captive. He came in and he bound the strong man, the devil, and he plundered his house, snatching back what was stolen from the living God and setting each and every one of us up in the household of God in this new household and then empowering us to serve. This is what God has done. Did you know that God has a task for each and every one of you? I I know you might not have as much money as the next guy. You might not have that beautiful singing voice like the girl three rows back. You might not be an engaging teacher. 
But God has poured out his grace in endowing you, you, with the gifts with which to serve the body. It's not going to be the same as the next person. It's not necessarily going to be easy. It's going to require sacrifice and vulnerability and at times even a little bit of pain. But when you get it, when you really grasp the reality that in his grace he wants to use you with all of your scars and all of your sins to fulfill his mission in the world, you will respond in keeping with your gifts. That's how it happens. When you get it, you respond from the heart, you respond in generosity, you respond in obedience, you respond in keeping with your gifts. Fifthly, when you get it, you respond cooperatively. When you get it, you respond cooperatively. In other words, God never calls his people to respond merely as individuals. He calls us to respond together. So notice what takes place in the lives of the Israelites. They don't stay in their tents and have home church with their nuclear family. They don't, uh, the, the grace of God draws them together with others who have experienced that grace alongside of them. They join something greater than themselves. Indian Creek, we could really drill down into this one for a long time, and I know we don't have a long time. The isolation, the individualism, the loner mentality, like I don't need anybody else, has grown more and more prevalent in our day and age with each passing year, and it is not from God. Yes, you must meet with God in your prayer closet. Yes, you must spend time with him one-on-one. But no one who has ever really been transformed by an encounter with God did not long to be a part of the people of God. Sin separates us. Sin is what splinters us. The forgiveness and the mercy and the grace of God in Christ draws us together. This is even more true now than it was at the time of Moses. The church, yes, the church, so often maligned, apologized for, dismissed, is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is his temple. Sorry to all of you health nuts out there who think that your physical body is like the temple of the living God. That's not what that means. That wasn't the primary meaning of Paul's instructions to the Corinthians when he said that you, plural, are the temple of the living God. More than once, the church, the local church, has been called the temple of God in the New Testament. You can look it up. Check out 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, 1 Corinthians 6, 19, 1 Peter 2, Ephesians 2. We are a body. We are a building. We are a family. We are a nation. You don't have to look very far to know this. All of those realities imply that when God pours out his mercies on us, those who get it pull together with other believers. And what a beautiful thing it is when it happens in accordance with the will of God. If you're in Christ, then you're part of the body of Christ. You are a member of the royal priesthood of Jesus Christ. You are like a stone in a great building, like nobility in a great nation. You are joined together organically by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit to the gathered people of God, and the day will come when all the suspicions and all the selfish ambitions and the greed and the shame and all the things that tear us away from one another will be cast aside and we will gather as one before the throne of our King, Jesus. And for those of you who aren't excited about that, 
I don't know any other way to say it except that you just don't get it. You just don't understand. Maybe there's something stuck in your heart. Maybe it's pride. You think you're better than everybody else. You notice everybody's sins and imperfections and you're blind to your own. Maybe it's bitterness. You're unwilling to forgive or show grace. Those attitudes are like poison. Get with God in prayer. Give them up. Beg for forgiveness and healing because when you get just how much grace and mercy you've been shown in Christ, then you're going to respond from the heart. You're going to respond in generosity. You'll respond in obedience. You'll respond with your gifts. And you'll respond cooperatively along with the rest of the redeemed. And I trust that that's our spirit and that's our attitude here at Indian Creek. But quickly, there's even more good news. Because when you get it, finally, your response will lead to greater fellowship. When you get it, your response is going to lead to even greater fellowship. Notice what happens when the work is done and the tabernacle is standing. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In other words, after the children of Israel respond from the heart, after they break out in a show of generosity, after they obey everything that God had commanded them to do, after they use their gifts and cooperate with one another to do what God asked them to do, the way is paved for even greater fellowship. The glory of the Lord comes down and is so overwhelming that Moses can't even go inside the tent. Friends, that's the way it works. God in Christ reveals himself in love and mercy. You get it. You respond. And then your response becomes the occasion for even greater fellowship with him. What I mean is that no matter where you are in your walk with Christ, there's more. You will never no matter how long you've been getting to know him, your relationship with him is never going to wear out because you use it up. That is never going to happen in terms of your relationship with the Lord. Exactly the opposite is going to take place. The more you lean into him, the more you know him, the more you fellowship with him, the more you'll want to, and on and on it goes. This is the opposite of just about anything else that you can pursue in this life. You make your life all about pleasure, those pleasures are going to lose their luster. You make your life all about wealth. You'll get that wealth and you'll realize it means nothing. You make life all about experiences, they're going to disappoint. But if you respond to the God who reveals himself in this book, if you get it, if you begin to understand the answer to the question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? then there will always be more of him to share with you. You will never reach a place where you can say, that's it, that's all there is to know. Because he is infinitely satisfying, infinitely glorious, infinitely wonderful, so much so that from eternity past, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been eternally enamored with the glory of the eternal God, never bored, never disinterested. Friends, when you get it, you're going to be different. You're going to respond. You're going to be changed from the heart. That change is going to result in generosity, in obedience, in service, in cooperation, in a growing relationship with God in Christ. And so I'm, pre I'm, I'm pleading with you at the end of a long sermon, at the end of a long sermon series, a book that, 
this book of Exodus that, that, that pulls back the curtain on the nature and the identity of God who calls himself, I am. I am pleading with you today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't ignore the call to respond to him. I know we all have things to do and places to go and kids to pick up and lunch and a hundred other things, but would you take just a moment with me to consider how you are going to respond to this God? 